Father, it is because of your cross that we can gather and celebrate your truth, the reality that you have saved us by your truth through the work of your Spirit on our hearts. And so, Lord, we give you all the glory. We praise you today. We praise you that your truth came to us and changed our hearts. Lord, we know that in a gathering like this, especially with an online presence now, Lord, we know that there are those who have never fully, truly trusted in Jesus Christ. They followed perhaps a false gospel. They followed perhaps a gospel that preaches personal accomplishment and self-esteem and preaches prosperity in Christ. And yet, Lord, we come to you and follow you and deny ourselves and take up our cross. And so, Lord, we pray for those who have not yet truly repented and truly followed Christ that today would be the day of salvation that they would say, no matter what may come, we surrender all to follow Jesus Christ. Lord, as they come to you, we pray that you would reconcile them to yourself and reconcile them to other people, including your people. Lord, we come to you unified, praising you, thanking you. We want to honor you today by not only singing your word, but by listening to your word and obeying your word. Help us do this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's wonderful to be together again and be back in our study of the book of Matthew. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're just going to pick up where we left off last time. If you can remember that far back, it was back at the end of December that we left off there, and we were studying that astounding confession that Peter had given, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This confession, as we learned, is is absolutely jam-packed with truth for us. In fact, I think over the span of three or four weeks, we noted six truths of that confession and should be true of any genuine confession of Christ. So from that, what you might call the first Christian confession, we paused our study in Matthew in the first few months of this year. We launched our series, Who We Are, and really it's all about what we as a church confess. What is our confession at Makakilo Bible Church? What do we believe? What do we teach? What do we proclaim? And after doing that, now we return to Matthew's gospel, and what we're going to discover is that it's not enough simply to believe in your mind or in your heart or with your emotions these truths. It's not enough just to profess it with your lips. We must live a life in keeping with repentance. We must live a life that professes Christ. Your your profession of Christ is realized, it is made real, not just when you say it, but when you live it. These things are good to believe in Christ, to profess Christ, to have the right theology, to profess with your lips and to sing and to praise. But Jesus is going to point out that's not enough. It all culminates in a life lived, followed, and patterned after Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a life of self-sacrifice. He lived a a life of submission to God, a life of self-denial, a life that would lead Him eventually to the cross. So if we truly profess Jesus, we will follow Him, we will deny ourselves, and we will take up our cross. 
So the next three messages, we're going to look at this larger section beginning at 21, going down to the end of the chapter. And the theme and title of this series is Take Up Your Cross. And this week, we will note the way of the cross. Take up your cross. This week, we're going to note the way of the cross. Next time, we'll note the truth of the cross, and we'll finish with the life of the cross. But this is week one of take up your cross, the way of the cross. Jesus explained to His men that God had a divine path, a way for Him. And that path, that way would lead Him to a cross. It's very interesting there at the beginning of verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer. In other words, Jesus added this element of His teaching to the other things that He had taught. It became a major theme of His teaching from that point forward. You, you think about what He had taught before. He had talked about repentance. He had talked about believing the gospel. He talked about the kingdom being at hand, the nature of the kingdom, and those kingdom parables, life in the kingdom, those, that Sermon on the Mount. And here He's unveiling to them in clearer form what the path of the kingdom for Him would look like. He's unveiling to them and begins to unveil to them again and again. It becomes a, an integral part of His teaching to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed. This is the way of the cross. Now, we are so blessed to hear that first conversation when Jesus unveiled or introduced these things to the disciples, it should have been out of left field. They, he, Jesus gave them plenty of hints, and of course, you had the entire Old Testament at that point. You could have looked to and understood this servant who had come as Messiah must suffer. But He made it clear to them that He would indeed suffer. He's plainly teaching them now, regularly teaching here from this point on, that He would suffer and die. And he's going to add, and we're going to see this in this whole section, that if you're to truly follow Him, if you're to profess Him, if you're truly going to profess Christ as the Son of the living God, then you will follow Him to the cross. Well, let me read the entire section. Today we're going to focus just on verses 21 to 23, but let's focus on, uh, we'll focus on those verses, but I wanted to read the entire section as I put this together. I thought, you know, we need to just look at the whole section at once and see the trajectory here over the next few weeks. Verse 21 of Matthew 16, follow along, I'll read aloud. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind on the things, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? But what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
This is the word of God. I don't enjoy or cherish condemning other Christian movements or churches or preachers. It's not something I like to do. It's a dubious honor of a pastor, however, to point out false teachers and false doctrine. I don't like doing this, especially knowing that, that some among us, maybe here or watching, cherish some false teachers or false teaching. I'm like a lot of you. I don't like being offensive. I don't like being offensive to other people. I like being liked. But part of the dubious honor of being a pastor is indeed to confront false doctrine and name names, confront, confront false teachers. Paul told Titus, in terms of requirements for pastors, this is in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, he, he told, in terms of the requirements for pastors, that second only to a pastor's personal character is his ability to define and declare true doctrine and rebuke those who do not cohere to the doctrine of the Word of God. Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He went on there in Titus to say there are many people who are empty talkers, deceivers, people, men and women who teach falsely, these people who should not be teaching. And the man of God, he said, should faithfully and regularly warn his people of these false teachers and also denounce these false teachers. Now, let me ask you a question. Think about Paul and Titus. You think false teachers are less prevalent or more prevalent today than they were in Paul's day? Without a doubt, more prevalent today, right? More prevalent. I think we can safely say they are exponentially more prevalent today than they were in Paul's day. They're not just exponentially more in number, they have exponentially more in terms of fame, in terms of a pulpit, in terms of acclaim, in terms of influence, and certainly exponentially more wealthy than they were in Paul's day. Literally hundreds of millions of people flock to false teachers today. Hundreds of millions of people who call themselves Christians, who, who really earnestly and sincerely believe they're, they're following Jesus and yet they fall, follow false teachers, and they open up their pocketbooks and pour in wealth into the pocketbooks of these false teachers. Well, probably the most predominant false teaching today is what is known as the Word of Faith movement, or more derogatively, the prosperity gospel. I'm sure you've heard of it. This is the most popular the most widespread false teaching all across Christianity today. It touches both Catholics and Protestants. It is on every continent, save, I suspect, Antarctica, though it probably has made its way there as well. Statistics show that over 500 million people adhere to the prosperity gospel, and that's a conservative number. The real number is probably more like 700 million. The most obvious component of their false teaching is that they systematically deny the verses that I just read. I'm sure they tell you they believe these things. I'm sure they, they tell you that they preach these things and believe these things. But if you listen carefully, week to week, what they teach is the Christian life, if lived by faith, is certainly not about self-denial. It's about pleasing oneself. 
It's not about taking up your cross. It's about filling your pocketbook with wealth and health. The Christian life, if lived by faith, will surely result, they preach, in physical, financial, and material benefits. After all, they say, look how rich I am. They point to themselves as a great example. Now, the prosperity gospel has been around in one form or another since the beginning of time, but today's version of it really can be traced back to the 1950s. It actually goes before a little before that, but its popularity really took off in the 1950s. A fellow, I'm sure if you've heard of him, is named Oral Roberts. Tulsa, Oklahoma began to teach and write, if Christians would just claim in their hearts physical blessing, material blessing, if they even claim what their lips would even be better, God would give it to them. They would say things like this, we are children of the king and we ought to dress like king's kids and drive cars like king's children and live in homes like princes and princesses. He wrote a book with a very uncreative title, but it expresses this false teaching. The book is called, If You Need Healing, Do These Things, Sold Like Hotcakes. He wrote a defense of the prosperity gospel in his book, The Miracle of Seed Faith, where he ripped all of Jesus' teaching about faith out of context and simultaneously ignored passages like today's. Worst of all, it totally ignores the life of Jesus that was the life of the cross, the life of death and crucifixion, and it ignores the life of millions of martyrs who died as faithful people to the very end in spite of their circumstances. But the prosperity gospel is what people want to hear. They want to hear that they can go, heaven, go to heaven and also pursue their own interest. They want to hear that they can be right with God and, and have their pockets filled and their sicknesses healed and their relationships all figured out and fixed. And I look to these false teachers thinking that they have their lives all figured out, even though time and time again it's proved that they don't. By the 1980s, this false teaching had taken off with the help of televangelism, spawned massive and massively wealthy ministries. You think of the ministries of Jimmy Swaggart, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, E.W. Kenyon, Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, all these immensely popular people on a very immensely popular television channel, TBN. Moving in the 2000s, new versions of this false teaching, maybe a little more mild, but teaching the exact same thing. People like Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, John Hagee, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, Paula White. Sadly, more recently, people who have joined the stage with, with these false teachers are people like Beth Moore and Francis Chan. Have I stepped on anybody's toes yet? If not, just raise your hand. I'll make sure and find someone you like. Well, it's not just preachers. Christian music has been a massive source of this false teaching. It's dominated, really, Christian music. You turn on any Christian music channel, you'll find out it's dominated by bands that come out of these false gospel churches, Hillsong United, Elevation Music, Bethel, Jesus Culture. These are so prevalent that churches who even would say that they're trying to distance themselves from the prosperity gospel have... Happily, they happily sing, they happily adopt these songs, they pay for that music, and they encourage their people to do the same. The effect is not just, well, hey, it's good music. I read an article that came out of Cambridge University. This is a secular institution. 
came out of Cambridge University in 2018. The article's name is Bigger, Better, Louder. And there they demonstrate that not only have churches across Christianity adopted the music of prosperity gospel churches, but because they've adopted that music, because they've adopted that narcissistic music that's all about self and all about fulfillment and all about finding in yourself and having the joy that they think God wants for you, that all these churches have begun to unwittingly adopt the theology of prosperity gospel churches. Churches across all denominations, all theological persuasions, by adopting this music, have adopted the actual doctrine of the prosperity gospel. Well, what does this movement basically proclaim? First of all, I'll try to put it down in a, a few points here. First of all, they believe that Jesus suffered so that we don't have to. Now, with, as with every lie, there is a, an element of truth there, right? I mean, there's a sense in which Jesus did suffer and pay for our sins, and we don't suffer the penalty of our sins in eternity. But their idea is that Jesus suffered so that we never have to suffer if we have enough faith. We never have to have anything negative in our life if we have enough faith. Jesus did all the suffering, and now it's just a happy life lived in a bed of roses. You just live completely fulfilled. They pervert chapters in the Bible like Isaiah 53, John 10, to teach that, that salvation that Jesus provided is primarily a salvation out of hardship into a life of ease. Second, they teach that all the future promises associated with Jesus' physical return can be realized now. Bill Osteen's famous book, Your Best Life Now. I want to say, Mr. Osteen, if this is your best life now, I'm afraid about your eternity. They teach also, third, that in order for you to get the ball rolling and staking your claim for all these this prosperous life that everyone wants, you have to give seed money to them. It's a big con, right? It, it ought to be just plainly seen. This is a big con. What they're saying is, hey, to get the ball rolling, you want blessing your life, give us a little money. That's just seed money. This is a seed of your faith. You just give a little money, send a little money to our ministry, and you'll get the ball rolling in terms of a prosperous life. Finally, fourth, they teach the power of your words, your claims. They, they actually mean, actually believe that you have a power that is reserved for God, that with your words, actual power emanates. And if you just out loud claim things, you will get them. Now, there are a multitude of problems with this false gospel. One of the worst is that they prey on the poor. This Prosperity gospel is exploding in third world countries among impoverished people who will do anything to relieve their hardships, even if it means giving their last bits of money to these false teachers. It's so sad out of the meager pocketbooks of people in third world countries in places like India, South, Af South America, and Africa, these false teachers use that money to buy their private jets and their multiple homes. But the biggest problem is that they do not teach the gospel. With every word, they defy and deny the truth of discipleship that we just read. They don't sound anything like Jesus, especially in passages like this. They never talk about the cost of discipleship. They never talk about repentance. 
They never talk about sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Why? Those things don't sell. People don't want to hear that, that they're going to have to suffer. People want to hear that they're going to conquer. Jesus, for them, is merely a tool they use to gain wealth so that they cannot... They, cannot, they can't shamelessly proclaim Jesus. They have to create a new Jesus who wants only our physical and material prosperity. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in Scripture, though they may quote it a lot. They are devils. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And according to Scripture, they are marked out for eternal damnation. Now, I say all this to say this, to understand and believe and follow the words of Jesus here will set you against the most popular form of Christianity today. Now, I don't say it so you'd be angry and mean toward people who are caught up in that. And by the way, you know, you understand, surely, you read the Bible, you understand there's a difference in the way in which we call out false teachers and the loving and caring and kind way we teach people who are drawn away in these movements. We are to be loving and kind and careful with people. But the false teachers, we need to be faithful to call out. Now, I tell you this so you would understand if you embark on this path, on this way with Christ, if you follow Christ and take up your cross and you really believe what Jesus says here, it will pit you against most Christian music today, most Christian publishing today, most of the popular Christian preachers and teachers today. It will pit you against, it will make you an odd duck when it comes to your faith. Positively, though, it will lead you to true joy because your joy is detached from stuff and circumstances. It is in Christ alone. The prosperity gospel, probably the biggest weakness of it, is all joy is derived from good circumstances, good health, a lot of money, good relationships. But in true Christianity, you find your joy in Christ alone. That's what Steve just talked about moments ago. Christ died for us. I don't have any reason. Just because of that, I have no reason to repine, to complain. Jesus is enough. And we will find our true joy in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. We'll see this glorious thing, even just a hint of it today. And as we march through this passage, what we're going to see is that this is where true joy is, being completely abandoned to Jesus Christ. So, let me give you four things Jesus says about the path or the way of the cross that He is going to take. He's, he's talking initially about Himself, and then He will apply it to the disciples as we march through this the next few weeks. He'll apply it to the disciples. They, too, would need to take the way of the cross. If they're going to follow Jesus, they need to follow along this path of the cross. So Jesus starts by explaining the own, His own path, what He's going to do. All right, four things four characteristics of the way of the cross. Number one, the way of the cross is necessary. The way of the cross is necessary. Look there in verse 21 again. Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Underline or circle that word must there. 
Another passage, maybe you want to write this out on the margin of your Bible, is Luke 24, 25. You remember the story of the, the, the forlorn disciples. It was after the resurrection. They'd heard the story of the ladies. And they saw the angels and that Jesus had been resurrected and they're traveling on the road to Emmaus, but they still don't understand. They're slow of heart. And Jesus comes to them and says, Luke 24, 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory. I don't know if you've thought about it this much, but I've thought about it. Why couldn't God just zap the human race with salvation? I mean, no need for the violence and the blood of the cross. Why, why this incarnation? Why suffering and trials and crucifixion? I mean, isn't God powerful enough just to, just to zap everyone with salvation? Why must Jesus go to the cross? Well, God is certainly powerful enough to get everyone to heaven with a wave of His hand. He could do that. But His objective is not simply getting people in heaven. His objective is His own glory. His objective is to display His glory for the universe to see. That's His objective. His objective is to brilliantly display his, his holiness, including His love, and His justice against sin. And so, to that point, the triune God divides this plan before the foundation of, of time. They devise this very plan of redemption, culminating in Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and return. Let me give you a couple things maybe you want to write down. Why must Jesus be crucified? Why did Jesus have to die? And if you don't get this, you won't understand the rest of the passage, especially when Peter sort of comes up against Jesus and doesn't want it. Peter is sort of the, the first of the prosperity gospel people, right? He was the first one to kind of say, no, 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 surely it's got to be easier. Surely you can avoid hardship. Why must Jesus die? Why is it absolutely essential that Jesus go to the cross? In my mind, I think of three reasons. Number one, there are others, by the way. Number one, to satisfy and display God's justice. God is absolutely holy, meaning there are no gaps in His character. There are no flaws in His character. There are no moments when part of His character has to sort of live in the recesses or sort of be dumbed down so that another part of His character can be expressed. You know, that's how we think of justice and love or justice and mercy. When we express justice or mercy, it is at expense of the other. When we express justice, it's usually at the expense of mercy. When we express mercy, perhaps on our children, it's at the expense of justice. But this plan expresses and demonstrates both His love and His justice. We see with our eyes, reading the Bible, people even there saw God's justice, His absolute hatred against sin. The death of Christ was the way that God would remain 100% loving and kind and merciful, but at the same time, perfectly holy in terms of His justice and wrath and punishment for sin. A lot of people think of God as being sort of like themselves. Whenever they show forgiveness or mercy, they sort of have to ignore justice. They don't sort of have to sweep the sin under the carpet and ignore it ever happened. That's not the way God dealt with sin. He dealt with it in a perfectly just way, and He displayed His mercy in a perfectly just way. 
Romans chapter 3, 25, really on to the end of the chapter, God is depicted as presented, presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate His justice so that then the just, or the people whom He would save, in them will be demonstrated His mercy. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God had to display His justice. Think about it this way. God, as a perfectly holy God, must punish all evil to its fullest extent. How does He do that? He either punishes that person for eternity or He punishes Christ for a person's sin. But all sin, all sin is dealt with in a perfectly just way. It is all paid for whether by Christ or by a person living his eternity in hell. The cross was the satisfaction and display of God's justice. Number two, why the cross? To display God's love. This is the other side. God demonstrates His own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all will also graciously give us all things, Romans 8, 32. I think this is probably where the gospel begins to make sense as young children, right? You're a young child, and you see Jesus, and it starts to dawn on you what Christ is doing, what He's going through for you. What fills your heart is the love of Christ, that He would do this for me. No fault of His own. Amazing love. How can it be? Christ, my God, would die for me. We can't imagine the pain, the punishment that He took for love, and He would suffer for us. So, as to display His love as well. Number three, to reconcile us to God and to one another. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Ephesians 2.13, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling Himself to the, word, so, to the world. So here we have reconciliation. I want you to think about this. In relationships, there needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be a dealing with sin. There needs to be repentance. These, this repentance and forgiveness must happen for there to be harmony and reconciliation, a right relationship. Well, just as, as I just said, God in Christ dealt with our sin. So through repentance and faith in Christ, we would be reconciled to Him. We would repent, and forgiveness would be granted to us because of Christ. And more than that, there's reconciliation one with another. It's displayed in our our marriages, right? You think about marriage as a perfect testimony. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, it tells us this is the reason that God initiated marriage. God defined and gave us the, the institution of marriage, and He does define it, by the way. That's He's the one who created it, so he gets to define what marriage is and what it isn't. And there at the Garden of Eden, there's one man, one woman for life. And there he demonstrates the the bride as the church, the people of God, and the groom who gives his life so that he can love her and have eternal reconciliation. Our relationships with one another, even from race to race, there are those Those two races that are depicted in the Bible, the Gentiles, that's almost everybody, and the Jews, and that wall of separation, and Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that wall of separation has been torn down. Peace is made by the blood of the cross. 
You know, we were just singing moments ago, strangers chasing selfish dreams. We were once all strangers, and yet here we are, all these different races, all the different people. We would know each other. We wouldn't fellowship with one another, but here we are on a Sunday morning singing about the cross. It brings us together. Reconciliation, God with man, man with one another, is a result of the cross. So, among other things, without the cross, there is no full display of God's justice, there is no display of God's love, and there's no God-glorifying reconciliation between God and man and man and one another. You see why Jesus had to die? You see why this had to happen? Jesus is teaching His disciples the absolute necessity of the cross. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and die. The way of the cross is necessary. Number two, the way of the cross is painful. What is said there? Suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. We also know he suffered things from Herod, from the Sanhedrin. Herod, who was sort of mildly interested in Jesus and curious about Jesus, when Jesus wouldn't do the tricks he wanted him to do, he flipped on Jesus immediately, began punishing him just as everyone else would that day. Jesus also received punishment from the Sanhedrin, the Romans, Pilate, from the crowds, from the soldiers, and even another person dying on a cross next to him would mock him. From time to time, I listen to a true crime podcast. Maybe if you watch true crime documentaries or something, and it always amazes me how evil people can be to other people. It's just shocking how evil people can be to one another, how violent people can be to others. If a child does not suit a person's desire, they'll tell them, tear them limb from limb. If they want some sexual pleasure, they'll do anything they want to with other people weaker than them. People tear others apart, they torture others, they violate others, they intimidate and humiliate and kill others. And what comes up time and time again in almost all of these situations is how little they end up actually gaining from that violation. They kill a, a store clerk for the $243 that's in the till. They, they abuse and perhaps even murder their own child for moments of sexual pleasure. Well, this is no different for those who are violent against Jesus. Just for momentary pleasure, they were willing to put the Son of God to death, to try Him imperfectly, put Him to death. This, of course, begins with Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And today's money, I looked this up, and today's money, at the very most, sort of depends on what coins he was using, at the very most, it would be about $500. The least, it would be about 91 bucks. So what did he get for his 91 bucks? The, Roman, the Romans had perfected the art of punishment and torture leading to death. It began by stripping him of all clothes for humiliation. They'd beat him. Then they would bring out the whips and they would tear his flesh from his body. They had worked this to a science. They would tear just enough flesh from him that he wouldn't have died, that is, to have just enough skin to keep in his organs. Then they 
took Christ and pierced his head with thorns woven into three-inch thorns, woven into a mock crown. Then they pierced him with spikes, his hands and his feet, hung him on a cross just enough in just such a way that in order to exhale, he would have to pull himself up on those wounds, on those holes through his wrists and feet. Then they pierced his side to ensure his death, and all the blood and fluid drained from him. This was a dreadfully painful death, and behind it all was pure, unadulterated evil. Pure, unadulterated evil. So not only was this necessary, not only is it painful, it's also evil. The way of the cross is evil. The way of the cross will put you on a path where the evil one will actually come up against you. There are a couple of manifestations of evil here. The first the one I just mentioned is the most obvious. All the vile men, all the wicked people, the leaders, the vile crowds screaming for blood. This was a vicious day, a day of evil. And we see that when that day comes later in Matthew, the, the darkness, the evil that is present there, the evil nature of man really on full, full array. The other manifestation of evil comes not from where you would expect it, Jesus' own disciples. Look there at verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began, and I like to think of a parenthesis right there, and began, of all things, to rebuke him. Well, what audacity. Peter is rebuking Jesus, saying... Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Like I said, Peter was probably the first one to give himself over to the prosperity gospel. Hey, it can't happen that way. Jesus, you came to, to reign and rule and to give us kingdoms and thrones and give us wealth. What is this business about the cross? It's not going to happen. What are you talking about? To point out the evil nature, this is not just a mental slip-up, this is not just a mild mistake. To point out the evil of it, Peter, uh, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Do you understand why Jesus answered so firmly? He must go to the cross, and only Satan would try to hinder that progress to the cross. God's love and justice must be displayed. Reconciliation between God and man must be established. That's the way of God. That's the way of the cross. The way of the man, the way of man, the way that we like is a life of ease, prosperity, victory over everything in our life, dominance over everything. It's the way of self-fulfillment, a way of self-pleasure, self-assertion, self-esteem, We live for this thing. It's the exact opposite of the way Jesus lived and the way that Jesus would call His disciples to live. And so, as the opposite, it was abjectly evil. So Jesus set His face like flint toward Jerusalem, and Peter opposed it. Jesus unveiled the source of this opposition. It is nothing but unadulterated evil. And we see this even when we ourselves follow Christ. Sometimes it's more than just pain involved. Sometimes there's evil. It rises up against us. 
wants to call us away and snare us to self-pleasure and a life led that's a life of ease. We think, surely there's a way to to go to heaven and be right with God and also pursue all my own self-interests, all my own pleasures. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on the things of man. You see why it's so important to abominate the prosperity gospel? It's not some just little mildly different version of Christianity. It's not Christianity. It's not just some alteration, mild, sort of similar, sort of in the same camp. No, it's not. It's the opposite. It is violently against the things of Christ and the way of the cross. And ought to be called out and rejected. We shouldn't toy with this. Even if it's the mild forms, you know, we've come to an age and era where people are more sophisticated than all the, the goofy stuff of Oral Roberts and some of those early prosperity gospel guys, and now we have these more sophisticated people like Joel Osteen. It's just, it's just sort of maybe not so mystical, maybe not so uh, fantastic. Maybe it's just pleasing yourself and living a life for yourself. Again, looking for your best life now. Every week, these people flock and hear these sermons, how to love themselves, how to be successful, how to find self-affirmation. Talk about, they talk about self-forgiveness. Did you know that self-forgiveness is not in the Bible? You say, well, I learned a lot. I learned to forgive myself. No, you just weren't trusting in the forgiveness that Christ gives you. That's enough. You don't need, it's not like Christ, well, it's not quite enough to have Christ's forgiveness. I need to forgive too. That's all out of the prosperity gospel. Reject that. Trust in Christ alone. He's provided you the forgiveness that you need. Don't, don't side with Freudian science that is found nowhere in Scripture. I need to forgive myself. You hear sermons about self-forgiveness, self-esteem, self-affirmation. Oh, it's couched in biblical terms. It's lots of great music and great bands and makes you feel so good. But it is not the gospel. It is evil. Beginning with Jesus' experience, when a person embarks on the path that even Peter himself proposed here, that is an evil path. And beginning with Jesus right here, as he explained to the disciples, if you embark on this way, on this path, evil will rise up and call unto you like a siren song. It will lure you away from a life of self-denial. So the way of the cross is necessary, painful. It's fraught with evil on every side, but this is the part we can smile now. But it is also glorious. That's number four. We just get a small peek. Some of you thought may have, I may have missed this. Look there at verse 21. And Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, just want to make a note, and we'll get to this more when we get there in our study of Matthew. Don't ever be troubled by the way the Jews numbered days, right? I mean, if we, we 
21st century America, Americans, we count days in 24-hour periods. And if you were to count days, Jesus was buried on Friday evening and he rose on Sunday morning. That's just, that's not even two full days. So what is this third day business? Well, that's the way the Jews counted days. Even people who oppose Jesus, archaeologists, even unchristian people, realize the Jews count day by each day. So they say Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's three days. That's the way they did it. So don't be bothered by the fact that it says and on the third day be raised, not three 24-hour periods or 72 hours. What Jesus means is three named days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's just a bonus for you that were wondering. Jesus was not bad at math. Uh, this is the glorious truth. And it's just a little nugget here, so I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time because Jesus just mentions it at this point. It's just a mention, the third day be raised. Now, this is three, day, three weeks in a row that we've talked about the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection means Jesus' suffering really did pay the price for our sin. Is that glorious? That's glorious. Jesus' suffering really did provide reconciliation. Jesus' suffering really did pay that price for sin. It displayed God's wrath against that sin, and we got to see that God hates sin even more than we do. And He brings down His wrath not on us, but on His own Son. What magnificent love, what glorious love. And the miracle that confirms all these things is the miracle of the resurrection. And what's more is that Jesus showed us that by completely abandoning our own selfish desires and pursue the will of God, the joyous product is infinitely more glorious and infinitely more wonderful than having your best life now. It's a life lived in submission to God. You live life abandoned to the will of God. You're not mired in selfish desires and deceit and wondering why you're not getting the raise and wondering why your health is what it is and, and troubled by all the things around you. No, you find your joy in Christ and Christ alone. Well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We'll be seeing this more as this passage goes on. Even the disciples that day got to taste, got to see with their own eyes the power of the resurrected Christ. But the way of the cross is necessary. It's painful, fraught with evil on every side, but it is also glorious because it is in the end for God's glory, which is our greatest good. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth, Lord. We pray that we would indeed abominate those desires that would run contrary to a life lived in self-denial after Jesus Christ. Help us to follow Christ, no matter what that means, Lord. Oh, Lord, we, we pray for healing. We pray for right relationships. We, we pray that uh, our finances will be worked out, that Life will go well for us, but Lord, our joy is not derived from those things. Our joy is simply the fact that you have died for us. And we give you all the praise, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for sending your Son here to do this. Again, we pray for those who have not genuinely repented and followed after Christ. Lord, show them, give them a glimpse of the glory of following Jesus. Lord, I pray that every morning as we open our Bibles and study and learn this way of self-denial and 
following after Jesus, Lord, I pray that we, as we do this every morning, Lord, we will rejoice in the fact that in spite of the pain and the necessity and the evil of it, we'll find the glory of Christ is our greatest joy. Help us live joyful to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me for a time of benediction. Now, as those who have heard the voice of the Good Shepherd, be grateful always that He has laid down His life for you. And follow Jesus, who willfully and readily laid down His life for the glory of God the Father.